Hey everybody, it's Tony, your host here. Just want to invite you to head on over to tonyfletcher.substack.com and subscribe, if you will, so that you can get yourself a weekly newsletter full of news about this podcast, my other podcast, a Substack-only subscribers podcast that's launching in December 2023, and you'll get additional show notes for this episode and other episodes complete with pictures, links, and even video and music if need be. That's tonyfletcher.substack.com. And now on with the show. And my question is, wouldn't more people really enjoy barefoot hiking if they weren't in a rush and they gave it a try? Welcome, one and all, to the second episode of the second season of One Step Beyond, a show all about positively engaging with the world outside our door. If you're new to the show, great to have you on board. If you're a regular listener to the show, even better to have you on board because that was a long, long gap between the first and the second series. And I'm super glad of this show back up in your feed and you were like, oh, cool. I was wondering what happened to Tony's show. Well, it's back. And specifically for everybody, I really hope you listen to the first episode, an interview with Matt Fitzgerald, a prolific author, running guru, fitness um, endurance coach, nutritionist, unfortunate COVID, long COVID sufferer too. And we talked about the joy of exercise and in particular the need to take the majority of your exercise easy, which a lot of us kind of weekend warriors don't do. Um I took some of Matt's other advice to heart and I'll be back at the end of the main feature today to talk about a challenge I set myself that was taking place just after our first episode was published. I'll let you know how I got on. In the meantime, you will have noticed if you saw the title of this episode that we are going to go barefoot hiking with Ken Posner. If Ken's name seems vaguely familiar, that's because he was a guest on the first series. Um, I asked Ken to define himself in as few words as possible, something I'm going to do with, I think, all the guests this time around until it gets boring, at least. Ken came back with ultra-minimalist runner-slash-hiker-slash-peakbagger. As you can imagine, we did not do this one over Zoom. I took my trusty recorder out into the field, or more specifically, out onto a local trail. And as a result, there's lots of lovely autumn ambient noise in the background. Uh, just gently in the background, you'll hear the rustle of the wind. You'll hear the uh, chirping of the birds early in the morning. You'll hear a few cars off on the main road in the distance. And uh, you'll hear a few other hikers come across us because we were the ones going slow on this particular day. I actually really like having those sounds in there. A little bit of a nightmare to edit at times, but hey, that's the uh, the work I take on. Um, for me, it makes a welcome change from hearing people being interviewed down the other side of what we once called a phone line. As always, I've edited it a little bit for length and, and clarity, and I don't think you need me to stick around. I think we want to get out and do this, don't we? So, again, welcome to One Step Beyond. We're going to go barefoot hiking with Ken Posner. I'm back in the outdoors with uh, with Ken Posner, and 
you were the guest on one of my favorite episodes from the first season, so first series, depending where you're from, uh, who was Diogenes and why should we care, uh, which was a chance to talk about Greek uh, philosophers while we uh, bushwhacked without navigation, without technology, up one of the Catskill Mountains. So that, was a, that was a lovely day and a lovely episode. Um, and you were a natural at, uh, at natural navigation. You picked up on it very quickly. Thank you. I was out the other day and I did remember to look at the sun and just say, where is the sun in the sky? Let that, let that help me figure out where I am. It was um, it was a good day and we succeeded. And um, I, wanted, I wanted to have you back on. Um, you've kind of like almost changed your name, though, since um, going by <laughs> Kenneth Posner, uh, who'd written um, one book. And I think you've got more books in the works. Uh, you're now tending to go by the name Barefoot Ken, which I think suggests what we might talk about today. You know, I have, I guess, by this point, sort of transitioned to mostly barefoot. Uh, I even went into the grocery store the other day <laughs> because after a while you're like, well, I don't need them, at least not in the summer. And why should I bother? Right. We're talking about shoes here. Yes. Yes. We don't need <laughs> shoes. Now we touched on, <clears throat> we touched on this to some extent with somebody else that's from our, um, our general New York community, mm -hmm. Bill Hoffman, who has done a lot of marathons barefoot and, mm -hmm. and generally runs in the lunar sandals, which interestingly I couldn't adapt to. Although I wear uh, my Vibrams uh, a lot, I couldn't, and go zero drop, I, I couldn't adapt to those. But it was, um, that was a really good episode. And we talked, we talked a fair bit about the shoe industry and I've been, um, and the need for shoes or rather the, the lack of need for shoes. And I've been reading up some more, but um, just, you know, one of the things that was great about going out with you on that particular day is you, you, you were talking about different stresses mm -hmm. to put your body under. And in the middle of that was, uh, we went out on election day, 2020, uh, there was plenty of snow <laughs> on the ground and halfway through the climb in about zero degrees Celsius, you took your shirt off and went, that's right. Went, went, <laughs> went shirtless, right. um, for the rest of the hike. And you were discussing that as just one of my many stresses that mm -hmm. you can put your body under. Maybe I know you've got a military background and that you know, all these different stresses can come in use when you actually want to go for, for tough conditions. Uh, one thing I want to credit you with was, you're not saying not the only person with this, but you, you kind of helped turn me on to the idea of just, um, people call it intermittent fasting, but really right. mm -hmm. all I'm doing is giving my body a 12 hour break overnight. And yep. I have just gotten really into the habit of 12 hours between my last calories and my first <laughs> calories. Uh, so I want to credit you with that. And that was another just stress that you were, you were talking mm -hmm. about. Um, did you come into barefoot as just one of those initially? Uh, yes and no. And I, I would say the application of stressors is all about training. In other words, you're trying to make yourself a better and more competent and more reliable person by learning to manage yourself through stressful situations. That's what all training at its heart is about. Um, well, there's also the, the concept of developing specific skills, but the training to make yourself tougher it's about managing yourself. Uh, and that's true in the military, that's true with the martial arts, and that's true in many different um, cultures. So, interestingly, my approach to barefoot started with a conscious cost-benefit decision, right? Um, which is to say, I reading Born to Run, I thought maybe it would help me develop more natural form and thus reduce the risk of every runner's bane, which is injury. Uh, so that was the, the rational approach. But then it turned into an adventure and it just became fun. 
not not every step fun but it that's probably the real reason why i'm mostly barefoot now but back to your question in terms of stressors yeah barefoot is a great training discipline because the stress is on the soles of your feet and not so much on <laughs> joints and ligaments and tendons because if you overdo it for you know body parts it can be you can put yourself out of commission for for weeks and months and even years whereas i found you know, I'll really uh, piss off the <laughs> skin on the bottom of my feet, and usually my feet are better the next day. Yeah, they they adapt. Yes, they're and they're strong. They're robust. Their mission critical equipment have been moving people and our animal ancestors around for millions of years. So they're they're actually quite tough. Right. No, you're certainly not the only uh, barefoot person out there. You know, the, the barefoot Ted is the one we, we talked mm -hmm. about with Bill Hoffman yep. and. Uh, there are other, uh, I'm going to call, call, call people sort of proselytizers for, for going barefoot. Uh, however, you have just achieved something that, that this was the spur for me getting you back on for this uh, second season. You just achieved something. You've already got a few records under your belt. For, you, you wrote the book about running the long path. At that point, you had the fastest known time. You've done the ridiculous running from Death Valley up to <laughs> top of Mount Whitney. Yep. And back down again because you needed to get back to base. Yeah. Um, you went back to Mount Whitney uh, to do something else that you need to tell me if you know of anybody else who's done it, uh, but tell us what it is. And tell me also, I don't think you succeeded first time out. That, that's right. And so in 2020, when we were all struggling with the surprise of the pandemic, um, I was desperate to get out and do something outdoors. Um, and I came up with this idea to hike the John Muir Trail, which many people have done. And I was inspired in part by John Muir, um, and curious to see the California mountains, which I had seen from an airplane and fell in love with them. It was Alpenglow from, you know, 30,000 feet. Uh, so I went out in 2020 and, you know, I had just been trans started my transition into barefoot. And so I thought, why not try to do the trails barefoot? And indeed, some of the trails uh, in the Sierra are beautiful, sandy trails, but some are not. <laughs> some are quite uh, terrible piles of rocks like the mountain passes and some of these steep uh, deep canyons so the first year um, I made it about three quarters of the way barefoot but I had to pawn shoes in a couple places and being sort of a stubborn person I decided to go back in 2021 and do the whole thing uh, but this time I had a resupply problem and also frankly once again I found some of the sections were just too brutal. Uh, so I failed again, although I made, uh, made it a little bit further. So 2022, uh, the theme was about finishing what you start. And actually, I saw a friend, somebody I had met the year before, and he reminded me. He said, Ken, finishing what you start is a good habit to get into. And then I remembered I told him that. <laughs> so I, you know, the theme this year was just get it done because when you set out a goal, you want to try and you want to try and, and finish it. And so I did. I did the entire 210 or 211 miles without shoes. Uh, in places, it was great fun. In places, it was absolutely miserable. Typically, the worst parts were downhill, gravelly trails exposed to the sun that's a bad combination yeah <laughs> so you've got sharpness you've got heat and you've got um uh, uh, steepness the downhill is more difficult typically in barefoot um uh, at least for people like me who adopted it sort of later in life 
And that's because you've got to lower yourself down each step. No hopping or, <laughs> or jumping. Each step down has to be very precise. And it requires a, a, a huge engagement of your core muscles. Right. To keep your posture correct. Right. Well, let's back up a little bit. People, I'm sure, listening to this show will have at least heard of John Muir. Some of them could do with a refresher on who he was. And uh, they may also want to know what the trail is, what the John Muir trail is. So, mm -hmm. um, what, tell me. Yeah, so John, John Muir uh, was a naturalist in the 19th century. Um, and he became famous uh, for his knowledge of and love for the California's High Sierra Mountains, which he called the Range of Light. He was a wonderful writer and he inspired people. I think he, he helped... Um, you know, people of European, typically white uh, descent, who were living in the 19th century, which was an industrializing time, he helped them rediscover their connection with nature, which for the indigenous populations had never been lost, but before these quote-unquote civilized people uh, was at risk. And he was also just a tremendous, positive, joyful person who inspired people he met. He um, helped convince Teddy Roosevelt to protect Yosemite. So his work had a just a tremendous positive impact on, on you know, keeping the Sierra from you know, becoming a, a giant strip uh, shopping mall. He and was an immigrant, wasn't he? First he was from Scotland. Yeah, yeah, so Scotland. from Scotland. Mm -hmm. And um, there are stories about him literally walking across America. Did he actually do that? Or sure. Did yeah. Yeah. When he was a young man, I think in his early 30s, he was working in a factory and was injured. He lost sight in his eye for a period of time and recovered. But he decided at that point, no more nine to five for him. So he walked a thousand miles from, I think it was Indiana, all the way down to Florida and then actually visited Cuba as well. But after that, he, he heard it, he discovered the Sierra. He came out there and he spent his first summer there working uh, as a shepherd <laughs> or, or accompanying a uh, a sheep expedition up into the meadows. Was, that's where they took the sheep to, to feed them, to let them graze. And he discovered the, uh, the Sierra. He also uh, uh, argued with the geologists of the time, like Josiah Whitney. Uh, Muir argued that the Sierra was formed by glaciers, whereas Whitney believed it had been formed through earthquakes and volcanoes. And I guess Muir was more right, and he became very well known uh, for that. But his ability to influence people was, was huge. For example, Teddy Roosevelt. He, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson came out to visit him. Um, the John Muir Trail is 211 miles long. It starts in Yosemite in the northern Sierra, uh, and it ends on the summit of Mount Whitney. And along the way, it covers, I want to say, uh, eight or nine mountain passes, uh, ranging from, call it 10,000 feet up to... 13,000 feet, uh, and it, it takes you down into deep uh, canyons, uh, forks of the Kings River and, and uh, the San Joaquin. Uh, it takes you through the wonderful, you know, pine forests and up above treeline into what some people call the God Zone, which is just, it looks like the surface of the moon. Uh, it's, so it's a, it's a wonderful, spectacular uh, mountain range. I have been out to um, Mammoth Mountain a few mm -hmm. times. Sure. I've stood on top of Mammoth Mountain looking down at Yosemite. Uh, 
the middle of winter is not necessarily the best time to be to be out there camping or hiking. I'm not even sure what's allowed at that point, but I've looked longingly at it. Are you the first person that you know of to do it barefoot? As as far as I know, although um, I certainly haven't heard of anybody um, else hiking the John Muir Trail barefoot. And over the last 10 years, I think I've seen in the Adirondacks and New Hampshire and the Catskills, I was counting them up the other day, a grand total of five other barefoot hikers. It's pretty rare. Um, it's not mainstream. Uh, so I, I think I probably am. But I would caveat that by saying, you know, the Mono and the Paiutes and the other uh, Indian tribes native to California, from what I re read, they habitually went around barefoot, at least in the, in the summer. So I don't know if any of them would have had reason to do that particular trail, but they certainly would have been capable. Right, so you're not trying to state that you've done anything new. In fact, what you're really saying is uh, you're going back to uh, who we were. Ex exactly. And part of my interest in barefoot is part of a philosophy where I seek, uh, in my life, more nature and less technology. And there's a lot to be said for that. Um, the... This is going to be an, this is an interesting conversation I have. Two of the other initial interviews I'm doing, one of them's in the can. It was with Matt Fitzgerald. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you know Matt. He's a prolific author of 30-odd books about running. And, yes, yes. Yeah, I've read some of his stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, we were talking about the dependency on technology there. And he is certainly... I was actually reading one of his other books yesterday about brain training where he has literally a part of a chapter called Why Shoes Cause Injuries. Right. Mm -hmm. So we, we're we touching on these things there. And at that point, he was saying he does everything zero drop. And I think the Vibrams had only just come into fashion when he wrote that mm -hmm. book. But he was proselytizing about those, among other things, that whole um, tendency for... And that, I mean, does this apply to hiking shoes as well? There's, there's a slight difference from when I go out in, in what I go out into hike and what I see other people in. Right. So, so here's how I, I think of it, Tony. Uh, and I said more nature, less technology. I'm not against technology. I'm not trying to advocate for a true paleolithic uh, lifestyle. Um, but what I see and react against is what I call the mindless or uncritical adoption of technology in the belief that technology will make life better. And I don't think technology makes life better. I think it makes us more productive, which is important for sustaining, you know, a huge human population. But but you take shoes, uh, for example, they're a great technology for moving faster over rough terrain. And they have, like any technology, costs and side effects. But the question that I ask is, what's the hurry? Now, if you want to do, as you've done, Manitou's Revenge and finish within the time limits or other ultra marathons in rough mountainous terrain, then you're going to use a shoe or a sandal, most likely, unless you're an incredibly talented. Uh, but by the way, we, we um, I adopted barefoot later in life. I don't consider my, I consider myself to be a tenderfoot and not that strong of a barefooter. There are people who do amazing things. Uh, I, I um, direct a race called the SRT. And we had a woman who's twice done it, the 30-mile division, entirely barefoot, in the Schwangangs, where the rocks are conglomerate with pebbles and very hard. So what people can do is amazing. But having said that, you know, shoes are almost always going to help you go faster on rough terrain. But again, the question is, what's the rush? Right. Well, that's an interesting thing to get into. I have spent many years being competitive. 
largely since moving up here. So I'm looking at about two decades mm -hmm. of being pretty competitive. Uh, uh, qualifying for Boston was a personal highlight of my life. Mm -hmm. uh, completing the escarpment in under four hours mm -hmm. uh, five years ago was an even bigger highlight in my life. Yep. Not something I'm sure I can do again. Very interesting. I talked about this with Matt. I found myself slowing down. I finally reached that point of age mm -hmm. where I found myself slowing down. And that opens up uh, the question of not so much what's the rush, because I still, you can still qualify for Boston because it's right. age, it's age graded. Right. right. Um, but not so much maybe what's the rush as, well, if I'm not going to get faster, what are the interesting new challenges right. that I can take on? Is that part of where you end up? Because you, oh, were, sure. you were competing before, for sure. weren't you? Yeah, and I passed that point as well. I'll quote Marshall Ulrich, and he made this comment when he gave the pre-race speech at Leadville many years ago, I think 2013. Uh, he said, even as you get older, don't stop setting goals. And to me, that's what you and I are both talking about. I loved going fast. Going to Boston was a huge sense of personal accomplishment to me. And, and part of the reason is that those events are meaningful to a lot of people. Um, but my transition started in my early 50s when I found that and, you know, we were talking about stressors <laughs> and stressors on knees and ankles and tendons. And I found that when I pissed off my tendons, that didn't work out well for me. And it took a long time to recover. My first transition was actually away from racing. Uh, and I did something called the grid, which is climbing the 35 peaks in the Catskill. But you have to get up to each peak in each month of the year. And it doesn't have to be one year. You can do it over a multi-year period. And that was more of a pilgrimage where speed didn't matter which was perfect for me at that point because I was dealing with injuries. But it was a meaningful accomplishment in a natural setting, and I learned a lot, and I pushed myself. I learned about the mountains, and I learned about myself. And so I think as you get older, you can do the age-graded speed goal, and you can do it in shoes, and that's perfectly legitimate. But there's a world of other things you can do as well. And you can create the challenge in the event in a way that's meaningful to you and perhaps other people will find it interesting as well. You want to show people, I have a simple philosophy, be, be the best or be better if you can, <laughs> and if not, do something different. Right. And, and if I you can't do that, then just go help somebody. <laughs> well, that's, that's good because that's actually three, three layers. Yeah. Yeah, which is, which is great. And to go help somebody is really important because uh, volunteerism is exactly. essential to yeah. the community we have, whether it's yeah. people who maintain trails, people who literally go up and sit at fire towers for right. a day um, or setting yourself goals that uh, might be uh, more complicated in some ways uh, and are less about speed. And on right. that note, how long did it take you to hike the John Muir Trail this time with successfully? It took me 22 days. So it averaged to around nine miles a day. And uh, do you have a sense on what uh, people have generally recommended? Uh, somebody that's just looking to through hike the, with shoes, they've got to be fit to do this, that's mm -hmm. without doubt. So what, what, what's the normal length? Well, there's, there's a range. And, you know, the fastest known times, that's not what you're asking, but the fastest known times are now around three days. Um, but I think 21 days is a typical recommendation. And somebody who's fit or young, you know, I think can easily do that. And, and some people take longer, too. Yeah, but, and you have to get permits for it, is that correct? That's right. right. Yeah, and the permits, are, they're a challenge, and we're very fortunate in New York not to have, uh, not to need quite as extensive a permit system, but getting a straight-through John Muir 
uh, pass is difficult. If there's a lottery, it's competitive, or it's first come, first serve, and the permits disappear literally within seconds. But you, you've done it three years in a row. What's the secret? So the, the secret <laughs> is an idea I got from a ranger, actually, uh, which is just to say, hey, go in in the middle <laughs> and do one part and then come back to where you started and then do the second part. Because generally you can find a permit to get in in the middle of the trail somewhere. Ah, that's good information. Now, when you come back, are you coming back by road or re-hiking the same miles? Uh, by road. Right, So, okay. for example, I, what I do now is I go in and in the vicinity of Mammoth Lakes and uh, go up to Yosemite and take the bus mm -hmm. back. And then there are buses from the southern terminus as well. All right, but that actually answered that question as well, because I know you did this solo. Yes. And was that particularly hard challenge being on your own because i know you have experience with doing things like this but when when you're down and i watch your youtube videos and literally you were going down quite feeling quite down at times <laughs> and let, letting people know that this wasn't easy it really helps to have somebody else around were there are there moments of of self-doubt and loneliness oh for sure but i've been doing this stuff for a while now and i i find sometimes that there's a part of me that's that's just in tears and then literally a, in tears uh close okay <laughs> uh wailing and cursing and groaning and then there's another part of me that's in control and steady now sometimes that part breaks down too <laughs> but i actually um i i think of myself i think of myself as the runner as the person managing the um the operation and as a separate part of me which is setting the strategy and the goals so there's multiple layers involved sometimes they're all just about dying but usually part of me is still in control we're not making this sound too attractive i realize but you and i uh, and i think a lot of listeners to this show are, are people who are interested in challenges and doing things that are difficult because you know you only pass through once and right it's it's nice to know that you you took on some took on some challenges uh I, I think there's a uh, opportunity for you to talk a little bit more about the slowing down and, and the slowing down to sort of um, uh, metaphorically smell the roses. Um, tell me just a little bit more about what you've gained from saying, I'm no longer going out at speed, I'm going out to, to really enjoy this. And how does that relate to other philosophies, sort of slow cooking and... Um, other things that where where people are trying to say, you know what, let's let's slow down our pace of life and maybe maybe dial back a little bit and and be more, I guess, be more tuned in, more aware. Well, and you know, I'm going to speak out of both sides of my mouth because I love to race, um, and uh, I ran a two mile race uh, a couple months ago up in uh, just north of Rosendale and had a great time and was limping around afterwards with a sore calf. <laughs> so I, I like to be very specific about my goals and I like to be able to, I guess the real answer is I like to flex my goals. And so for a 5k, if I'm feeling good, it might be all about speed. Um, and I don't regret any of the, you know, the stuff I did in, in years gone by. I mean, I pushed myself really hard at Boston and had a time that was great for me that very few people <laughs> care about, but it mattered to me, just like you mm. were saying, Tony. Um, and uh, But there are other goals besides speed. And so um, when I did the grid, it changed a lot of my thinking. 
because I was coming off injuries and the, the, and the purpose of the grid was not speed per se, because there's no way to really even calculate it. Um, so I started paying more attention to the sights and sounds in the forest, which I'd always, I'd always been curious about. But, uh, but I started from a place where I frankly could barely tell the difference between a pine and, a, and an oak. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that because I still struggle. But I, re I remember reading that Thomas Jefferson knew his trees, and I always had this feeling that I should know my trees. So as I was moving through uh, the, the Catskills Mountains in pursuit of the grid, I began to study the trees and the wildflowers and the fungus and the lichens and the moss uh, and became very interested in them. And I think uh, something else I did, we talked about intermittent fasting. I do most of my hiking and running in a fasted state, and I do think it causes you to be more curious about the natural environment because that's what people did. <laughs> they were hungry and they moved through the forest looking for food, right? And so I think some people love birds, some love flowers, but this fascination with the natural environment is part of our birthright. That's part of who we are and, and what we what we did before grocery stores. Um, and I also used the grid to pursue other, to pursue other training objectives. So going shirtless, um, or going barefoot, or natural navigation, right? Which is finding your like we did, finding mm -hmm. your way through the woods without using the map and the compass and the GPS. And so there was again this theme of more nature and less technology, uh, which I think just that's just how I responded to spending more time out in nature. Now we were you were talking a second ago, but ru about running itself as a problem. And you think about running today, a conventional race. It is a tech-enabled exercise because it takes place on roads or trails where all the obstacles have been cleared, right? The runners have shoes, they have hydration, they have nutrition, right? Uh, they have GPS watches, and it's all driven by clocks and ego. And, and that is the modern world in a nutshell. And there's nothing wrong with that. I love that too, but the light bulb went off and I said to myself, you know, there's a more natural way to move through the wilderness, which is off trail without technology and paying attention. It's sort of the original mindfulness, if you will. So to me, that's a just as legitimate a goal and a practice as the conventional race. And that was really what John Muir was doing, of course. He was doing it without articulating it as such, but he he would go out for days without even bringing in, you know, in chilly October weather without even bringing a coat yeah he'd bring a few crusts of bread and some tea and go out and climb the mountains and come back he was the original uh, he would be an ultra runner today he had so much energy and enthusiasm and that powered him all over the landscape and you had a little bit of uh, what attracted you to the story of the legend of uh, uh of diogenes in that i i gather i mean he would go out like you say without a coat and pretty much a walking stick and i think always his notebook um not too much else, which does bring me to the question. I know a lot of people will want want to ask about something like when when, when you're doing this through hiking. Um, one of your, your short little videos was actually longer. You laid out your kit, which I found really, really helpful. Mm -hmm. I really appreciate you doing that because you've got to carry a lot with you. Um, what do you do for food on the uh, and water right. on the John Muir Trail? Yeah, in the kits, there's a good philosophical point. You heard me quote uh, uh, Schaefer, the first... Uh, person to through hike the Appalachian Trail, carry as little as possible, but choose that little with care. Mm -hmm. And so it's the art of the trade-off. And that's the right way to think about technology. If you bring everything you want and you're carrying 50 pounds and you can't make it down the trail, 
Now, young people <laughs> can carry 50 pounds all day, and I used to do that, but not so much anymore. I was just reading, um, I'm just reading a book by the science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson, and he's a great lover of the High Sierra. So he says your pack with six days food should be 10% of your body weight. So we're talking 15 pounds. I'm up around 25 pounds with six days worth of food. Is that only the food or that's the food? No, and that's everything. everything. Right, right. Nice so, right. so is he saying, by the way, your backpack, your whole backpack for um, should only be, what do you say, 10%? Well, he said 10%. You know, for me, that would be 15 pounds. Right. So he's saying everything should only be 10%. Well, he said backpack. I right. count everything. So right. I count my yeah. hat, my sunglasses, my shirt and shorts. Right, but also the food. And all the food. So my total weight, um, when I start out with, call it six days worth of food is is probably 25 pounds right which is understandable and manageable um do you do a lot of like the the sort of freeze-dried food yes and you were asking about food tony so i do do the freeze-dried um meals and i supplement that with uh some nuts and dried fruit and chocolate and uh also beef jerky right and i i um i know you're a, a different you have a different diet from me i found the first time out that I wanted more protein and whether that's because my body needed it or just because that's how my stomach digests. But each year I brought more beef jerky okay. with me. Okay. And I would no doubt want lots of protein. I would, I would get it from my, my own way. Um, water is not a problem on the John Muir trail, correct? Correct. And, and I was talking, and actually Kim, Kim uh, Stanley Robinson recommends not carrying water. And I came to that same conclusion not carrying water at all because they're frequent streams and lakes. Now, the only caveat that, you know, you start on a cool morning, you don't need water, the sun comes up, it gets hot, you see a lake, you're like, eh, it's too far off the trail. You keep going, it gets really hot, and then you're miserable. <laughs> so actually, now I typically carry a half a, a half a liter just so as not to get caught out in the sun and get miserable. And, and you know, as my food weight diminishes, I'll carry a little bit more water weight. Right. <clears throat> but, I, you know, I've got, I had some friends, we were hiking the Adirondacks. I tried lifting their packs. I couldn't even lift them. They had four liters of water. That's, you know, eight pounds. So they had like 30 pound packs for a day hike yeah. when there was literally water streaming down the mountain everywhere. Yeah. Do you need to filtrate that water? You know, in the High Sierra, the answer is probably not. I did carry a filter anyhow, just out of habit. Did you get blistered? No, I, I, I've done, um, at this point, close to 10,000 miles uh, barefoot walking, hiking, and running. Because I keep track of it in my training log. And I, I have had one blister. Now, I was not particularly prone to blisters. And you know you have to fit your shoes properly. Um, I, to be honest, I did have an issue this time. Uh, your skin can get dry, a little dry, and you can get cracks on the side of your feet, and they can be irritating, but they're not uh, debilitating. Assumptions we make that if we spend $200 on a pair of shoes, we will get extra comfort, security. It's not necessarily going to protect us from yeah. the elements. And, and I, I, Well, I mean, I, I, again, I, I come out here in the winter, and I can tolerate a light layer of snow, but I wouldn't go barefoot in deep snow. Um, so shoes definitely, have, as a technology, um, and, and they definitely will help you go faster on gravel and sharp rocks. Um, 
but I think the capabilities of the foot are extraordinary. And I'd love to see younger people getting into barefoot because I think they could do just amazing things. Um, but, but, but one point I wanted to make, and you, know, you referenced Chris McDougall and Born to Run. Based on my experience, I would say that the form of barefoot running and hiking is radically different from form in shoes, at least for me. Uh, and maybe that some people preserve their natural form even in shoes. Uh, but after years of, um, of going barefoot, I've just noticed a number of ways in which I move differently. And, and so I think one of the benefits of barefoot running or hiking, particularly hiking though, because running is usually going to be on a smooth surface. I think one of the benefits of barefoot hiking is agility and balance. For sure, because you can't afford to stumble when you're barefoot on rocks. Um, so every step has to be perfect. Right. You can't stub your toes. You can't slip and jam your foot onto some sharp rock. And, and so this idea that, and by, and by the way, um, barefoot running, you know, Ken Bob Saxton points out that on pavement, you may discover that you twist or scuff your feet. And that's really bad barefoot, but it's a bad habit developed in shoes. And so again, every step has to be perfect, but that's how we're born, well, right? Not we're born sure. to step <clears throat> absolutely perfectly and mindfully for long periods of time. Uh, it, and you just lose that habit when you use shoes. It's a cost of the technology. Yes, and it's also worth pointing out before I get to the where, where I was just interrupting you that uh, kids all over the world go barefoot, go to school they used barefoot. To, yeah, yeah, and um, and this will allow me to dovetail because I've done the interview with Matt Fitzgerald, and we did talk about how Kenyans, uh, East Africans, typically uh, run to school and often barefoot. Yep, and that's part of what uh, makes them very natural runners. Is, yep. is there's a culture of doing that. Um, I did not get to talk to him about this, about the, the, the shoes at all, and I only read this part yesterday, but he starts that section about uh, why shoes cause injuries by saying um, precisely 0% of barefoot runners, uh, well, he talks about overstriding, I guess, first, yep. but he says precisely 0% of barefoot runners overstride. Why? Because if they tried landing with their yep. heels, it would cause so much pain, they would correct themselves. So yep. that, I thought, was like, like that really, really nailed it. Because I've done barefoot running, and in a moment we're going to go out and do some, some, some barefoot hiking. I've done a, a little bit of barefoot running. I should really do more. And the thing I say to people is, if you just do a little bit now and then, it's great because it forces you to run well naturally. And when you yep. next put your shoes on, which hopefully will be zero drop because that's part of it, your feet right. are flat you will you'll have this muscle memory of how you should be running yeah and and i would point out for younger folks i mean part, part of the reason i do almost 100 percent barefoot now is because i don't have time goals on an absolute basis right because i've set for the most part my personal prs uh, although i never give up hope that i could <laughs> run a little bit faster um, but for, for younger folks who are into speed and races and shoes, I think a hybrid approach makes tons of sense where you're doing some amount of barefoot training and some amount in shoes. There's some really talented younger runners like Alex Ramsey and Jake Brown, and they've done extraordinary things. They're very strong runners. And I, I want to guess that barefoot is 40, 50, 60% of their training, but not all. Mm -hmm. So you can absolutely do both. And, you know, Native Americans in, in days gone by, um, they would do both because the moccasins were helpful for running in rough terrain, but moccasins took time to make and they didn't last forever. So you didn't want to use them if you didn't need to. So I think the hybrid approach um, would be fun for, for, for a lot of people. But, but back to the form, you know, 
I've got a slightly different take on the heel forefoot. That's what people notice first in barefoot running. Yeah, you don't want to land on your heel in a sharp rock. But actually, as you start to move fast, the, the natural architecture of the human body is going to cause you, in most cases, to be running more on the forefront. And when you go slow, either a jog or a walk, you're going to be more on your heels. But the, the real issue that I discovered, for myself anyhow, is that, you know, the heel is quite robust, but it doesn't have um, springs in it, <laughs> right? So you, the springs are your core muscles. And the combination of shoes and sitting destroys your core muscles. Well, it doesn't destroy them, but you never use them. My uh, doctor sent me to a physical therapist many years ago because my posture was so bad. And she said, you have well-developed core muscles, but you don't use them. Right. I think that's a challenge for a lot of us. And so, yeah, you can actually walk or jog on your heel. You can land on a rock on your heel. You just have to absorb it. And that's what's missing. So right. that's what that's part of the agility and the core engagement and the posture that you start to develop as you spend time on your on your bare feet. And, and I don't know that Matt would disagree with you there because he, he also states he's specific about the runners there because I think he says that when you're walking, there is more reliance on your heel For because sure. there's less pressure generally yeah. when you when you're walking. Yeah. Um, the the cushioning that got built into running shoes in the last few decades, the heels is what's uh, caused sure. the injuries. Yeah. So for for, yeah. for walkers, maybe having a heel is not quite the same problem because it's more natural to land on your heel when you're walking. But when, using that same yeah. approach to running. When I first started transitioning to minimalist shoes. I had trouble walking on the sidewalk. Oh, my calves got so sore. And I would walk on the balls of my feet. And that's called fox walking. And that's how you would stalk prey through the woods or sneak up on somebody back in the day, um, as opposed to cow walking, which is just clumping along in, in boots. But, but Ken Bob Saxton, and he's one of the gurus of barefoot running, he makes a really good point. He's, he observes that many people who just start barefoot running reacting to the heel start overemphasizing uh, the, the forefoot landing, the fox walking, the, fo the running on the ball of the foot. They overemphasize it, and the cost of that is calf strains. Mm -hmm. And sure. calf strains can lead to And I had a bit of that when I, for, when I was transitioning. So I think the real measure of some progress is the ability to stand and walk and even run a little bit solidly on your heels and use the core muscles. And um, it's taken me years to develop this just because I spent 50 years in shoes. And starting out with the huge heels, which killed me. I, I hated them. They gave me terrible shin problems. I think it's really good to hear from you that you're not some lifelong um, uh, champion of this and that you similarly have had doctors send you to physical therapist because sure. of the sedentary <laughs> lifestyle. Um, you know, there's a tendency when you find people who've done remarkable things, there's a tendency to think that they've been doing it all their lives. And right. it, it's really good. That's a great place for us, actually, I think, to sort of wrap up this lovely sitting on a beautiful fall day, autumn day, uh, here at the Mohonk Preserve in the, in the Shorengunks. And um, I've got a pair of Innovates that I uh, took the soles out of. Actually, I lost them many years ago. I've had these shoes forever, and the evidence that shoes, uh, that mm -hmm. when, when they're well-made, they don't disintegr uh, disintegrate mm -hmm. on you. You can keep wearing them. Um, Innovate can be hit and miss, but I'm going to take them off, and we're going to do some, some barefoot hiking. So, th so that's great. By the way, I used to wear Innovates back in the day. It was the first shoe I transitioned to. So I want to leave your listeners and Tony yourself with a question, which you'll 
you'll develop an opinion here very shortly, which is on barefoot hiking, because running's not for everybody in today's world. And my question is, wouldn't more people really enjoy barefoot hiking if they weren't in a rush and they gave it a try? So that's the question I'm going to leave you and your listeners with, and I'm curious what your, your uh, response will be to that question. And my response is, obviously, I did give it a try. We set off from the Coxing Trailhead there at the Mohonk Preserve in the Shawangunk Mountains, Ulster County, New York State, Hudson Valley, and meandered very slowly. I had to pick my way sort of over or between boulders and over or on the roots and uh, some of the sharper stones that are uh, part of the surface there, relatively soft surface. Kept the tape recorder off for the first 10 minutes or so while I literally sort of found my feet or very much watched my feet. And then we got chatting again. Well, of course, we were chatting anyway. We got chatting again on tape. Part of Barefoot is a recognition that if you're going to be natural, you're not going to have the tech-enabled capabilities. Mm -hmm. So you do need to learn to sometimes give up goals Mm -hmm. or give up the speed and distance that you were used to. And so... um, you know, starting out, it's not about distance or speed. It's just about rediscovering the capability. But the, the fun thing for me is that we're not just mindlessly hurtling through the landscape. The trail is changing. Mm-hmm. And there's these sensations which are very practical. Your feet are telling you how to place your weight and how to shift and whether to be cautious or move more quickly. And that layer of, of impression just creates sort of a multi-dimensional experience, at least for me. I, and I feel yeah. like more like I'm part of the woods and not just passing through. I'm definitely feeling that, that difference. I'm feeling very, very, very connected. And this is not desperately tough terrain. I mean, there are some, there are some pebbles. Again, it's not like I haven't done a little bit of this. Um, but it just feels very, very natural and comfortable, doesn't it? And it, it, feel, it does feel like one is, because there is nothing under the, the feet protecting us. It's like I'm of the earth right now. It's like you're exposing yourself to nature instead of hiding from it. And, it, you know, it's like, it's like skinny dipping in mm-hmm. the sense that you're plunging into the water without a wetsuit or even a bathing suit. Mm-hmm. And you're going to learn from mm-hmm. that. Um, whereas you, the, the challenge with technology is if you keep protecting yourself with more and more layers, shoes, clothing, a house, um, you end up retreating from the physical world and, and, and you shelter yourself from the rough edges of life, but you, you lose the ability to, to learn because yeah. you're not gathering data anymore. And that's all great to be productive. And so you're just learning... It's great your business or your job or whatever, but you're disappearing from the natural world. It's great up to a point. I'm going to let these other people pass us um, because I can hear them in the background. Hey guys, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, thank you. So out out of interest, we're we're (laughs) acknowledging, both of us, that we have to change our attitudes towards speed. Um, But you also told me you log everything, so I don't know whether whether you just... Ha- I, it, it's not important to know whether you use an app or not for that. But what do you find... Every trail, every mountain is going to be different. But 
how have you reset your goals in terms of what one can hike an hour? Uh, oh goodness, that's that's such a painful question because you saw those young fellows fly past us and we're yeah. we're tottering along. And I want barefoot to show natural strength, uh-huh. so I want to be just as fast as everybody. Because <laughs> um, I want to make this point that you 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 don't need to be tech enabled for everything that you do. And by the way, in races, I often do. Like on a race on a smooth road, I'll pass a lot of people. Uh-huh. I'm not quite in the front the way I used to be. Um, but on the trails, when it's rocky, pretty much everybody passes me. And that can be a little frustrating sometimes. But to your question on speed, um, my goal, it's not like I'm for or against speed. It's I want to have my hand on the throttle and pick the right speed for me and the environment. And I think there's a tendency in life to get pushed and end up always going fast. And that's what racing is Mm -hmm. all about. And that's part of the reason there's so many injuries because people are sort of mindlessly rushing. So to me, it's about getting control. It's about personal agency. It's about getting my mind straight so I can pick the right speed. By the way, barefoot's a great discipline for that because if you egotistically want to go fast, your feet are going to stop you real fast. They're going right. to be like, dude, you do not know what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Slow down, stop before you hurt us. Well, I, I see the, uh, we saw those two young guys uh, climb ahead of us nice and quick. Admittedly, they just started out. I'm going to suggest we take on this little climb because I think not only is it going to be a little steeper going up, but then we should turn around and yep. to your point about how the hardest part of this is the downhill, um, which is true for a lot of people with uh, a lot of different sports. Um, personally, I would want to emphasize to anybody that variety is the spice of life yes. and that um, you can be doing a variety of activities within each activity. You can be doing a variety of terrains, a variety of speeds and that if you are interested in doing something like this, uh, doing it in small chunks is necessary. I mean, we're, we're actually coming up to a tree across the um, the trail here, that, which will be a perfect... That might be a good turnaround. Yeah, it's point. not across the trail. I guess it's re, refocus... Um, it's, That's right. It's a turn. It's, it's a turn. Yeah. Good, point, good point to turn around there. Um, but yeah, I, and the reason I mentioned it would be a good point to turn around. My feet are saying, this is great. This is interesting. This is quite hard work. Uh, how long do you plan to do it? That's the message, my feet. <laughs> well, let's listen to your feet, and uh, this will be a good turnaround point. Um, the uh, I think part of um, barefoot hiking, I think you can transition pretty quickly into it if you'd like to give it a try. Barefoot running is a totally different matter. Barefoot running is going to be a multi-year transition mm-hmm. for any, unless you went about barefoot habitually as a child. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you think about it, just changing the uh, geometry of tendons and ligaments, even a millimeter or two difference is a lot for a tendon. And um, the forces involved in running are much sharper or much much, uh, much stronger. So barefoot running has got to be a multi-year transition. But barefoot hiking, I think you can pretty much pick it up as quickly as you'd like because you're moving at a slow 
controlled pace. You know, I did ask you the question. You're generally very good at, uh, at answering questions. Uh, I think you dodged the one about pace, so I'm going to rephrase <laughs> it. For some hikers, um, I think generally the trail guides would say, yeah, 40 minutes a mile average yep, yep. uphill. <clears throat> if you average you up here on the downhill and particularly in the Catskills, which can be quite steep. Yep. That's a good average. Um, somebody who's doing that, I mean, is an hour a mile a reasonable goal to start? Yeah. Or would it be more, maybe we should double your 40 well, minutes? Well, so I'll give you a specific answer now since mm -hmm. you, you won't <laughs> let me weasel out, which is good. Um, the in, in, in California... My daily mileage ranged from as much as 16 or even almost 20 on one day to under six. So that tells you there's huge variability based on the terrain. And therefore, you know, that one mile an hour threshold, that's not even a good threshold in very difficult uh, no. rocky terrain that you've got to pick your way through, which is also true for hiking. But, but I would say barefoot hiking, going uphill, um, you know, a mile and a half an hour if, the, if you're not scrambling or dealing with... Uh, a mile and a half an hour, that's pretty that's good. Not that's not too 40, steep. Or, that's 40 minutes. But, but downhill, it might be slower. Okay. If you've got it, and I'll, and I'll demonstrate, because now we've got a yeah. little bit of a downhill, and it's, right. it's, it's not super steep. It's not a scramble, but it's visibly, what is this, a... 10 or 20 percent grade it's it's, it's a steep uh, noticeable downhill and the, the the challenge is you can't jump so you have to and, and this is what i do in the gym by the way uh, which a physical therapist showed me you've got to do like single leg uh, lowers step downs and you use your core muscles in your thighs so that you place your foot straight down and don't drag your feet across the, the grid. So I don't know if there's anything really to look at. I'm, I'm very intrigued because your, your, your feet, uh, I can see the bones in your, in your feet kind of pulling out in a way I don't see on mine. I, uh, you, you look, if I, it's a compliment, I guess you look more animal than I do. I think I still look rather human here. And you're, you're, it's fascinating. I can see the sort of like the veins and the bones there flexing and unflexing and it feels like your toes are way longer than mine i don't know what size <laughs> shoes you take um but i'm wondering if some of this is the result of your going barefoot whether your physiology must have um adapted and it looks very visible to me what you're what you're doing well it's hard for me to 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 say i think my feet are more tan than yours mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah <laughs> but um but but you learn to use, so one thing about the feet that I've discovered and again I'm sort of an I would call myself not an expert at barefoot but an expert at transitioning. Yes. <laughs> so you, For you become an expert who, on that part. Who uh, who started out you know the first fifty years of their life wearing shoes every single day. Um, but uh, one thing I've noticed in the foot itself is the importance of the big toe. Mm -hmm. And you'll hear physical therapists talk about that, too. How mm -hmm. in shoes, people sometimes lose the, um, the dexterity of the big toe because there's not anything it can do different from the other toes. But digging in with the big toe mm -hmm. activates the arch. Right. So it's something I'm now focused on a lot, particularly going uphill, because then you can, you know, you help dig your way in and pull yourself up. 
Yeah, and it can, uh, yeah, it moves away from the others in a way that it's very hard to, to wiggle yeah. your individual toes away from each other. But Yeah, I've, I've had doctors and physical therapists, you know, say a good exercise to do is to rotate forward on your foot and push your big toe in, but let the other toes just relax mm -hmm. because they're mostly along for the ride. Right. That's getting myself moving and active. By the way, on the John Muir Trail, I yes. walk from 6 till 6, 12 hours or yeah. sometimes longer every day. And it's just the most natural thing in the world, and I hate just sitting around. Yes, um, well, I think that uh, not only do we do we tend to develop tendencies, but I do think some people enjoy that more than others. I yep, mean, yep. it can be hard to describe to people unless they've done it how beautiful it can be spending 12 hours hiking on your own, or uh, and maybe not seeing another soul. Uh, you, you know, some some people say that just sounds that sounds awful. So, so here's a, a theory I have, which I wanted to mention. I didn't a little earlier. I have this theory that the most joyful life would be the most natural, which means doing what our species evolved to do until recently, which was moving through uh -huh. the forests and the mountains in search of food and and shelter and, and other things. And you know, the question is, does technology make for a better life or would a more natural experience be a better life? And more natural means hot and cold mm -hmm. and tired, mm -hmm. right? And getting bitten by mosquitoes and, mm -hmm. and stepping on that rock the wrong way from time to time. And I, I think when you use technology to shield yourself, mm -hmm from these rougher stimuli, you end up with boredom, yes. right? And so it's not clear to me that that's a better life. No. It's it might not. be, a, it would no. certainly be a more productive one in terms of output. Possibly, possibly. Hi there, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Beautiful dog. Hey Thank puppy. <laughs> I'm, yeah, and I'm not sure that boredom makes one more productive. Um, I mean, you know, boredom in a factory, etc. It makes me, it might make one a, a, a worker bee more than a corporate bee or worker ant, but I'm not sure it makes people more productive because they've lost their inspiration. So there is that side of it as well mm -hmm. that I that I think is very. Uh, is but very I think important. that's the, uh, the 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 the. Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head when you say, is walking in the forest for 12 hours something that people want to do? And maybe the answer is different for different people. And maybe if you spent every day for years on end doing that, you would really come to treasure the, um, <laughs> the time spent in the recliner. So may maybe it's just a question of a balance, which is different for different people. But I find as I get older too, um, I can feel that if I don't use my body, it's not going to retain its capabilities. Uh, and so, you know, going to the local grasslands, doing a three mile walk, that's a great experience. And I'm, I'm proud of my job and I like working with people and I want to be productive, but just that time spent behind the computer is not meaningful to me. Yeah. And the fact that you're still doing all of that, uh one would sense if one is just reading your blogs and your list of achievements that you spend all your time outdoors, that you're one of these people who's managed to carve out this lifestyle or somehow you you got rich quick and you're like out in the mountains every single day and you're you're making it clear that that's not the case. That's just what you choose to to 
tell yeah, people I about? Never, <laughs> I wrote one book on uh, my business experiences, and then I decided that if you're going to be in business, just do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Don't talk about it. Um, whereas I love to share my experiences outdoors, whether um, because to me it's it's so much more meaningful work is meaningful in a different way but i don't feel inclined to share that part of yes, my life i i i understand that that makes sense we're um we're still coming downhill a little bit and you made you very very key point that when i was impressed that you could do an hour and a half uphill uh let me rephrase that you looked at me funny when i noticed that i was impressed that you can do um a mile and a half per hour uphill barefoot hiking you caveated that it can be slower downhill there is certainly even on a very modest grade i am certainly feeling one has to 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 pick more carefully there is a somewhat more defensive reaction coming from my feet that says you know you you that incline downwards is more difficult to navigate um, as you're transitioning right, to barefoot uh, than, than going uphill. You can't afford the extra momentum. No. Because <laughs> feet, no matter how tough they get, they're never as tough as rocks. Maybe, <laughs> maybe somebody's feet are that tough, but mine are not. I've been doing this for a while, and the skin is definitely toughened. But <laughs> rocks are hard. <laughs> right. Even acorn caps. So it is that feeling of nakedness and vulnerability. And it, instead of just gear, which is shoes, which is mechanical protection, barefoot you have to pay attention, be mindful, be agile, pick your steps carefully, use the whole body to navigate the trail. So it's, to me anyhow, just... A huge amount of fun. It's it's intense, mm-hmm. right? And we were talking about boredom. Barefoot, you have huge contrasts. You step on the gravel, and the acorn caps, and the twigs, and it's you know it's irritating for sure. But then you reach the moss, or the smooth dirt, or the polished rock face, mm-hmm. and it's wonderful. Whereas in shoes, you lose that contrast. So barefoot has contrast. And it makes it intense. And like I said, it turns every even short hiker walk or run into an adventure. And that's what I crave. It's the full mind-body engagement. It's not just clumping along. It's not just covering pure distance. Uh, it's not just a cardio workout. It's really the whole body. It, it absolutely is. Anything that's interesting in life should be a challenge. Exactly. I think that's the nature of yeah. what makes yeah. it interesting. We've got a group coming that possibly might have climbing gear on. Good morning. Good morning. How are you doing? Yeah, they do. Setting out to climb. Yeah, yeah, barefoot. But you're climbing. You got the mountain gear. The Sean Gunks, by the way. Um, are the one one big area around here for rock climbing aren't oh they? for sure yeah they're legendary yeah by by the way you know part of the the fun of barefoot hiking or running but particularly hiking is the reactions you get from other people <laughs> yeah. so sometimes people think it's really cool oh hello hello it's okay yeah, yeah we are fine thank you very okay. much we're just getting some practice without our shoes i know <laughs> what happened is good for you it is good for us yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're going to do doing some rock climbing? Yeah. Yeah, you're out for the day? Okay. Great, enjoy. Right.
Yeah. The so, point proven, huh? Yeah, sometimes people say, you know, respect or next mm -hmm. level or beast or warrior, yep. and that's cool, you know. But sometimes they're shocked, and then they're like, are you okay? Mm -hmm. So when I was on the John Muir Trail, and, and they'll say things like, well, where are your shoes? Or mm -hmm. what happened to your shoes? <laughs> yeah. Or who stole your shoes? <laughs> yeah. So I started telling stories on the John Muir Trail. Just You can only answer the same question so many times before you... Mm -hmm. feel a need to <laughs> make make things up <laughs> so i told people that uh bear cub had run off with my shoes and they seemed to believe that <laughs> <laughs> well that was interesting that guy an english uh it's not that group's first language he said at first but he's noticed we're barefoot then he said are you okay yeah and then when we said yeah yeah we're just choosing to go barefoot he said yeah yeah it's good for you well, so, think, he, so he yeah. went through that whole range there the the the, the, the surprise the just checking we're okay, and then the acknowledgement that what we're doing actually obviously has a benefit. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and by the way, uh, I remember from years back visiting somebody in North Carolina, and they were going around barefoot, and we asked why, and they said a, a Native American remedy for back pain is to go around barefoot on rough terrain. And mm -hmm. I'll tell you exactly why that works. Uh, be, and in my experience, uh, sitting all day and wearing shoes the core muscles don't get engaged all the pressures on your back mm -hmm. as a young man i used to have trouble standing mm -hmm. literally my back would ache particularly if i had gone running because all i was using my back muscles and not my core or not the abdominal muscles so um, you go barefoot on rough terrain and it's a full body experience you're using the core a lot so that, i think that's where that uh, remedy came from so that's a great strength building exercise because uh, the, the, the core training is something that uh, a lot of people lack. That's and right, that's right. And you can do planks and sit-ups your whole life. If you don't learn to use those muscles when you're in motion, it won't do you any good. And from there, we walk back down to the car park and wrap things up. Thank you for doing this. And, and, and there's an interesting point about I'm obviously holding a piece of technology or this wouldn't be on, on people wouldn't be listening to this. But um, I don't know if it was instinctive. I left my phone in the car. Um, <laughs> and I will, when we're done, I'll go get it so we can get a couple of pictures of ourselves barefoot. Yes, yes. But it's nice to be without the phone. I went to take a picture when we were up on the hill and I was like, ah, I left it in the car. That's nice. <laughs> the, uh, on the John Muir Trail now, there's no cell service, but people have the very small uh, inreaches, mm -hmm. which uh, link to your phone, and you can get satellite phone calls and texts. So the um, but but here's what I was going to leave you with a comment from Thoreau, and and Thoreau often sort of exaggerated to make a point, but he said men have become the tools of their tools, and that's what we we don't want to happen for women either. My thanks again to Ken, who is always a font, indeed a fountain, perhaps even a gushing geezer full of information, analysis, and indeed opinion too. He can be found either as Barefoot Ken or Long Brown Path on the various socials, including YouTube, which we referenced. And you can buy his book, Running the Long Path, while waiting for him to complete his next one. I'll put the links in the show notes. 
There are a couple of things I think I should just mention based on our conversation. I'm not entirely sure I agree with Ken that transitioning to barefoot running is a years-long process. Certainly, if you've been very, very highly cushioned uh, running shoes or indeed just high heels and you've got that like 9, 12-millimeter heel-to-toe drop, then as he points out, every single millimeter uh, that that you come down is going to stretch your tendon, uh, your calf just a a little bit more. Um, But if you've been running in more standard sort of three to four millimeter drops, indeed, if you've been running in zero drop shoes, which is the natural way to go and uh, the way a lot of people are going anyway, then you shouldn't have really that much of a uh, a problem transitioning it's the change i made was from probably four to six millimeters and uh i have no idea why i made it sound like i've done 12 hour hikes without seeing a soul i never have i've done a couple of super long events and on those long events including the one i'm about to reference and mention in just a moment that i did only like what 11 days ago and um, i did go about three hours without seeing a soul but that's all and i haven't really done too many 12-hour hikes either to be quite honest so i guess i got carried away with myself anyway uh, it seemed only right and proper for me to take on a little bit more barefoot hiking before posting this episode i only did so this morning while uh, listening to an edit of the show uh, of our interview and i went out on uh, the trail right opposite where i live oddly enough there is a uh, trail in the uh, the city where i live where funny enough i saw a black bear uh, presumably co- uh, gathering food for winter uh, just two days ago that um, they're, they're really not very harmful but you don't want to antagonize them so obviously on that particular morning i uh, redirected my my route the the bear was basically saying no no man this is my trail today uh so i said yeah okay you're bigger than me it's your trail today uh memories of being back at school in south london anyways where am i oh i was out on that trail barefoot this morning and i guess one thing that's not perfect timing is uh most listeners are in the northern hemisphere we're heading into the winter at the point of putting this episode out the ground was very cold this morning when i took my shoes and socks off um but you know what? Our feet, you know, it's it's like Ken talked about taking his shirt off. We're, we're sort of built for this. My feet got kind of used to it. Um, it wasn't a completely natural hiking trail, but it is a sort of converted woodsy bike trail. And it's much the same as when I did it um, in in the episode that you just heard um, when we were out in the on the Coxing Trail. You know, you have to pick your way a little bit carefully. Uh, you might think to yourself, I could do this a lot quicker with shoes and I wouldn't have to wash my feet when I get home again. But you are interacting with the ground. You are strengthening your feet. And certainly I'm looking forward to doing more of this on the real trails themselves and um, one reason I haven't done more of it on the real trails in this last couple of weeks is just after the last episode was published I took on a specific challenge of my own. Uh, Matt Fitzgerald had helped me maybe coalesce my thoughts that as I've been growing older and slowing down a bit I've just lacked a little bit of motivation for the races I'm familiar with knowing that I can't really get faster And I wanted a new challenge and it all came up around the marathon march uh, of Crystal Palace fans in South London. Takes place or took place this year at the end of September. I couldn't be back in South London for it. Uh, It's always a lovely time to be in the Hudson Valley. And I reached out to the organizers and I got honorary status and I was uh, allowed to 
take on the Cat's Tail Trail Marathon, which took place a week later on the 1st of October, a 26 and a half mile proper trail marathon up and down the Catskill Mountains, four peaks above 3,500 feet, six to 7,000 foot of elevation overall. Some of it pretty tough. And no, I did not do it barefoot. Not whatsoever. I probably would still be out there. They'd have had to send a rescue party. But I did insist that I would hike it in solidarity with the marathon march. I also got the OK from the race directors to do that. They kindly sent me off in the first wave. First, uh, and maybe the only time that's ever going to happen to me. I did have the fun of uh, watching, feeling the second wave come past me, bounding up the hills as I went hiking with my poles. Now, I only set the challenge about three weeks ahead of the event uh, itself. Otherwise, I would have been running it. I really genuinely did not feel capable I just didn't feel that I knew that I would complete it within the runner's cutoff time of 10 hours. I really wanted to complete it within that time because otherwise I'd posted did not finish. And I've never had one of those. And I've, I felt like that was a good goal to set myself. I knew I could finish it eventually. Um, but I went out, I did a little bit of training. And although I could do individual sections at the necessary pace of about 22 minutes a mile, I was very dubious about completing the whole thing and not just running out of uh, steam or running out of my walking legs. And and I did not want to to run. So those walking legs would have had to come to a, a, a crawling legs kind of standstill. To my amazement, my genuine satisfaction and amazement, I completed it in eight hours and 32 minutes, uh, if we're counting. Uh, the race directors were equally impressed and surprised. And one of them is Mike Sudi who's also a previous guest on this show. He was on the show called Running an Ultra, which was a play on words because it was really about Mike being the race director, the co-race director for not just the Cat's Tail, but Manitou's Revenge, the really tough ultra marathon takes place uh, in our mountains in the, uh, the mid-spring. Uh, Mike holds the record for doing, well, he may be the only person daft enough to have taken on doing all 35 of the Catskill 3,500 foot peaks in one fell swoop. I think it was about 58 hours. Um, he told me that he had hiked about 75% of that. And, you know, we talked immediately thereafter, uh, immediately after I finished about how um, I would have had less like refueling problems. I wasn't trying to eat on the go. No GI gastrointestinal issues going on there. Um, I was able to kind of keep steady. I finished with a smile on my face. My recovery was very, very quick. Some of that comes because I'm, you know, I've got, I guess, good fitness. I know the mountains. Um, I'm good uphill. I'm good at the climbing. I think knowing the course helps an awful lot. But none of that takes away from both the surprise and satisfaction of taking on a new challenge and, and crushing it. And so I just want to recommend that to everybody who listens, uh, you know, just find your own thing. It can be what I did, a variation on a theme so that you're doing something new and you're motivated to do it, especially if you haven't been motivated by your sort of familiar uh, routines. And all the better in this particular case, I raised over 1200 pounds for the Palace for Life Foundation. So grateful to everybody who chipped in, like immensely, immensely grateful. 
the, the foundation does really good work with disadvantaged youth in South London around the Crystal Palace uh, catchment area in Croydon and areas thereabouts. That's where I grew up, more or less. And it's, uh, it, you know, there's a lot of uh, poverty there, a lot of uh, um, um, other issues that come with poverty. And it's really good to see the club giving back and equally good that fans can do their part in a sort of solidarity. It was the first sponsored event I'd done like that since I was a kid. Uh, hopefully it won't be another 45, 50 years till I do another because I don't expect to be around. It was a win-win, a win-win all around. Uh, so I'm going to just leave you on that positive note. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, do remember to leave reviews, ratings, you know, subscribe. You hear this from every podcast, don't you? Uh, so I'll leave it there. I'll see you or you'll hear from me in a couple of weeks. And I look forward once more to going one step beyond with you. Take it easy. Take it easy.